and study it in its entirety like this. I hope it's been a blessing for you. And I would encourage if you've missed any of the sermons to go back and listen to those because uh, there's so much that kind of builds on uh, each other, things that build on each other as the, the, the letter continues, as Paul writes this letter to this church in Corinth. And, and I've said in other weeks that the church in Corinth is not typically a church that's held up as kind of the ideal church. When people are thinking about you know, wanting to become a church that Jesus imagines, Corinth isn't always a church that people go to and look at. But the reality is, I think it's because of their challenges, their struggles, their, their issues, that they actually are an ideal church to look at, to learn and, and, and gain kind of what can we, you know, what are they doing, what happens in their context that can also apply in ours. And, then, and so I think the fact that they are trying to find a way to be the body of Christ in the midst of being an imperfect people uh, is a really helpful thing for us to pay attention to. Uh, and they're, they're trying to be the church even when church is messy, maybe another way to say that. And so uh, we're, this morning we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 11. And due to the nature of the content that Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians 11, we're going to read it in its entirety uh, in a couple of sections. We'll kind of break it up a little bit. Uh, but I think it'll be, it's necessary so you can kind of get a sense of what he's talking about. So before we do that, uh, I want to pray, uh, and then we'll, we'll get started. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful this morning uh, to gather, to be here with other Christians, and we ask God uh, again that you'll meet us here in this place, that you'll help us to have ears to, to hear and eyes to see the things you want us to hear and see this morning as we look at 1 Corinthians 11. We're thankful, God, that the churches we read about in the New Testament were not perfect, uh, that, that it's very clear uh, that from the beginning as Christ established his church that perfect people uh, were not the standard by which you were going to use folks to build your body. And so we, are, we join our lives with theirs in, in thankfulness and gratitude for your love and, and forgiveness toward us that's been extended toward us. And we pray that you'll help us as we continue to become the church here in Kaufman County that you imagine, that you want for us to be. And uh, we pray this morning your blessing upon our time in your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So there are two things that are going on in chapter 11, and both of those things involve practices that are happening in worship in Corinth. Uh, and so we have a lot to cover this morning, and so I want to jump in, beginning in verse 2. Uh, the way that you may notice in your, in your Bible that it kind of lays out, uh, the editors that, that did this later put verse 1 with chapter 11, uh, really that thought goes with, with what Paul said last week, and so that's why we're ver- starting in verse 2. And so I want to begin there uh, together. Paul says, I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of every woman is man, and that the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off, or her head to be shaved, then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. Everything clear so far? 
Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman, but everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it is for her glory? For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. So, the first thing that is happening uh, in, in worship is dealing with head coverings in worship and prayer in worship. And there, are, there is so much to say about these verses that I'm certain it could be multiple sermons, but I'm going to probably these two sections could be different sermons in, in and of themselves. And I'm trying to pack it all into one. Uh, but I want to I start by acknowledging that Paul starts this long discussion about veils and head coverings with a statement that that the head of every man is Christ and the head of every woman is man and the head of Christ is God. And I want to start there because I really think what he's saying in these verses kind of grows out of that statement. And and the word that's really important, one of the, the key and most honestly most challenging words in those verses is the word that in your translation is translated head. Uh, in the in the Greek it's the word uh, kafel, okay, so or kafele, maybe be somehow some pe- people would pronounce it, and it means head. Uh, in English, when we hear the word head uh, used metaphorically like it is here, I mean, Paul, we understand, right, isn't actually saying that the man is the head of the woman, literally the head. He's, he's, he's using metaphorical language. So when, in English, when we hear that word head used metaphorically, uh, we generally think about a person being in charge or being the boss, right, the head. And if you read it that way, it sounds like that Paul is saying that as the head, the man is in charge of the woman, the boss of the woman. But it turns out that there is a large question around that word kephele that in Greek and and how it's understood. When it's used in ancient Greek as a metaphor, uh, it's almost never used to mean boss or person in charge, much if at all, honestly. Uh, what, what's typically seen with the use of that word is that it's, it's used uh, to describe a source. Okay, so if, 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 if you're thinking, well, wait a second, Doug, head and source feel like very different words in our English language. And this is one of the reasons that Scripture is complex and difficult to understand sometimes. Uh, but if it's used as a metaphor, it's, it's more often used to describe the source of something, sort of like the way that we would describe the headwaters of a river. Okay, that might be a, a helpful way to think about this word "source." The headwaters of a river are the source of a river, the place where a river begins, or at least it leads up to the source. Right, and if this is the case, Paul is saying that in Jesus, think about this: in Jesus' incarnation, he came from God. Jesus' source is God, right? Because God can't, and one of the reasons I like this understanding of this word is because we don't believe that God is superior to Jesus. We believe that they are three in one. That's why we understand the Trinity, God, Son, and Spirit. Father, Son, and Spirit are three in one, and they are mutually beneficial in that relationship with one another. There isn't a hierarchy in that relationship. And so Jesus' source is God, and that Adam was created by Christ. Adam's source 
is Christ, and that the woman came from the body, you remember in Genesis, the side of the man, her source is man. There's a huge debate about this and lots of opinions about this, and you can read large papers and large books about this topic on your own if you're really interested in the conversation. Part of the debate is that people say, well, since Paul says that man didn't come from woman, but woman came from man, then somehow, you know, that, that's, that's how we understand the word head. Maybe man is first, so therefore man is superior or man's in charge. That idea, this is again maybe more than you care to know, but that, that idea is what people refer to as kind of making an argument, building your case based on the order of creation, right? Man came first, therefore he's in charge. Woman came second, therefore she's subordinate to the man. One, one, and that you, you could, you could, people have made great cases about why that might be the case uh, from Scripture. One problem with basing your, your argument, your belief on the order of creation is that it can work both ways, right? You can say Adam came first, but you could also make the case that, you know, God made the animals first, and then he improved upon the animals and made Adam, right, which was an improvement, and then God made woman, saving his best work for last, right? Amen. Thank you. I was waiting. I was hoping to get somebody talking this morning on that one, right? And and if you think about it that way, like creation actually got better the more creating that God did. And And I give you all that background, A, because I really want you to go study it on your own, but B, to say that you can spend a lot of time researching it, and I actually think it can be beneficial, but you can also spend time researching it and miss the point. And I think Paul's point is that in the created order, everybody matters, right? So much of what we're reading is contextual and cultural in this part of this letter. But he's saying everything comes from God. That's exact, that's, those are the words that he said. Paul says, everything comes from God. This isn't about who matters more or who is superior. Men and women are all made in the image of God and are capable of being gifted by the Holy Spirit. And we've debated these points, honestly. If you've been in church settings for a long time, you know we've debated these points so much in the past that I actually think that what's happened in the debates and the conversations is we've actually avoided talking about the fact that Paul says some other things here that really need to be considered, namely that he clearly states women can pray and prophesy. He actually seems to not have much to say, you know, he doesn't, I mean, what he says isn't that that women can't pray and prophesy. He has more to say about how they should be dressed as they do those things. And I honestly, I'm not laying down a statement about what our practices have been or should be in the future this morning. I just want us to wrestle with Scripture and acknowledge that we might need to consider those implications in our context, right? And I know chapter 14 is coming, and some of you know your Bibles, and you're already thinking, yeah, but Paul talks about women being silent. We'll get there in a couple weeks, and we'll deal with that too, so come back. So much of this whole thing is about head covering, is is cultural, is contextual. And and verses like these, I think, cause problems when we say, well, we just want to do what the Bible says, right? I, I get the sentiment behind that statement, but the challenge with statements like that is that our actions have already shown that we don't really believe this is, this is something that we should do. We already believe through our actions, I don't see any hats in the, in the house this morning, that we don't believe that this is something we should do. We've understood already that this is cultural, right? 
The, the closest thing that we might say that we see is that sometimes, you know, if, if there's a group of men and someone remembers to say, hey, men, take your hats off, you know, when we pray that men will do that. But I think in light of our totally different customs, the thing that we have to pay attention to is the principle that's at work here. And what he says, I believe, is a principle that he lays down for the church in Corinth and some other first century churches. And that that is that when women pray, when women pray, not if, when women pray, that they should have their heads covered. And we could debate about how that plays out and what it looks like, but the fact is undeniable that he suggests that women are praying. And I think in light of our totally different social customs, it isn't a principle that should be followed in our situation along the way in our pasts. I think we have limited women and girls and, many, and in many cases discouraged them from praying and teaching because we were unwilling to say, preachers were unwilling to say that it's a first century principle because we were unwilling to do the hard work of wrestling with, is this a command that's been passed down through the ages for all time or is it a principle that applied to some specific churches in a specific time? And to be honest, I think preachers often have been afraid to say things like that because of the backlash they might receive. And I think one of the things that I'm hoping that you are grasping as we're studying, I think actually the benefit of studying through a book of the Bible is that you get to hear words like this in their entire context in 1 Corinthians. So you're getting a sense, hopefully, as you're here week after week of what exactly is going on in this church and certainly some things you pick up. You know, Paul's using language that doesn't even make sense to us because we have no cultural contextual reference point for it. This is a letter that Paul wrote to a church in Corinth that we can learn from, but that does not align 100% in our culture today. And so those are things that I think we need to think about, wrestle with, consider. I think we're doing some things in, in really good ways in that regard, and I think that we can do better in that regard as well. And I want us to, to not miss the point by spending too much more time there. And I think that the point that Paul's making is this. The point he wants to drive home is that women and men are interdependent of one another. Yes, the woman may have come from the man. The man might have been her original source, but every man since then has come from a woman. Right? There might not be women without Adam, but there are no men without every woman that's ever existed since that time. Women and men are equal, but are also different. They're equal in God's eyes, but are also different. Every man and woman is made in the image of God. Paul believes that. Christ believes that. What Paul is doing is laying down and laying out a new way to live together as the body of Christ. Because remember, as I've been saying over and over again, unity is his goal. Unity is his goal. His goal is that the good news of Jesus Christ gets spread far and wide. And they were spending so much time talking about this that I actually think you, you hear a, a little bit, he's fed up. You hear his frustration right at the end. That's why I think he says in verse 16, judge for yourselves. I think it's like him saying, you figure it out. Notice he doesn't answer the questions from, I said it's verse 16, I meant verse 13. He doesn't answer the questions that he asks right after that. He just asks the questions. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Right? And he's, just, he's still asking questions. Those are all questions that he's asking there in those verses. In Jesus' new community that is being formed in Corinth, women and men share the title of God's image bearers. 
And in Jesus' community here in our context, women and men share the title of God's image bearers. Becoming the church that Jesus imagines involves us modeling for the world what a community looks like when women and men serve and befriend and challenge and cherish one another in Jesus' name. And one reason that I believe this matters so much is because of what he's going to talk about in the second half of chapter 11. And so I want to read there, beginning in verse 17. He says, in the following directive, so now he's, he's changing topics, I have no praise for you. He's heard about their meetings. He says, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt that there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. Sarcasm there. So when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another one gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then, brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further instructions. So the second thing that Paul's dealing with here are bad practices with the Lord's Supper. And this passage is fascinating in many respects, some of which, again, we won't be able to cover completely today. But one of those, I want to just say, that this is the earliest account that we have of a communion service in a first century church. And really, it's in some ways, I think, one of the more beautiful uh, kind of explanations of Paul's theology, his approach to the Lord's Supper, the way he thinks about the purpose of the Lord's Supper. This passage is, is uh, rich in a lot of ways, but I want to notice first that Paul's tone changes in this part of the chapter. He has no praise for their gatherings because they are creating division and they're living with division and they're not addressing the obvious division. His frustration is centered around the fact that when they take the Lord's Supper, they're forgetting that the Lord's Supper is about coming together around the table. And in Corinth, we know, right, church was held 
in the home. And when they shared the Lord's Supper, it was shared in the context of a larger meal. And it was the home had to be big enough for the church to gather, so it was certainly likely that it's in the home, get, we're gathering in the homes of the most wealthy members of the church in Corinth. And also at work in that culture uh, was the class system. The higher class elite of society all the way down to the poor. And, and again, in the world, wealthy people didn't associate with poorer people and vice versa. But in the context of church, they're all one. So everybody matters equally if they're all one. And no one is more valued than anyone else. So you can understand how this is a, a pretty different way of thinking as they step into their church community from the way that they've been living in Corinth. And so when... Like they're embracing to a certain extent the way that Jesus brought people together because they are a part of the church, right? They're all receiving this letter from Paul. So they're embracing to a certain extent the fact that, yes, we have some wealthy members, we have some poor members, but we're all a part of the same church. But, again, so that's good. But the problem is that they were only embracing it sort of. Right? Because when they came together, they're still behaving like they were in, a, in the world, in a divided way. There are a lot of theories about what's going on, but basically the wealthy, again, who likely owned the home that they were gathering in, were, most people think they were eating before the poorer members arrived, or there, there was maybe enough multiple rooms in this large house, and the wealthy members were eating in one place, and the poorer members were eating in another place, right? If they had two different eating rooms, you know, there might have even been two different food types of food that were being served. So in church, what they're doing, can we, can we see this? Like they're still enforcing the class norms that they, that they lived with in the world. And in doing so, they were acting like they were still citizens of the world and not citizens of the kingdom of God. And Paul wants them to see that the place that they become the church is around the table. The way they become the church Jesus imagined is by gathering around the table. And everyone that comes to the table, Paul says, is an equal. Everybody that comes to the table is a fellow servant. Everybody that comes to the table is a fellow member of the body of Christ. Around the table, everybody gets a chance to eat. Everybody has a seat at the table and everybody matters. It is, in fact, the Lord's Supper. It is his table, not our table. And they were making it their table, ruling over it in a way that, that segregated the population, that didn't allow certain people to be a part of the body. And so this meal, if we understand the Lord's Supper properly, right? what, what we're doing by taking the bread and wine, you, you are making a statement. Paul says this, that we're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. The way I, I would maybe add to that or say that maybe in a little different way, we're making a statement about who you are, you're a Christian, and, by, and, and what you believe, that he died and that he's coming back. Until he comes, that's the coming back, we will, we will proclaim the Lord's death. And so we, we're saying, I believe this, I'm a Christian, and I'm proclaiming that he died and that I'm going to keep doing it until he comes back or my life ends, whichever comes first. The meal should proclaim the gospel, but what it was actually doing was the opposite of what it was supposed to do by adding these social factors of status to the gathering. 
So what does Paul suggest? He he suggests three things. Number one, wait till everybody arrives before you eat the supper. Number two, if you're hungry, eat something at home before you assemble so you can wait for everybody to arrive. And number three, Paul will settle all of this when he arrives, right? So he's like, just do this until I get there, and then I'm really going to probably tell you what I think. That's what what I think happened. Paul doesn't want them to stop eating the meal. He just wants them to eat the meal together. But he wants them to do more than just eat together, right? You You can eat with someone and still not be with them. Have you ever done that? Or you've maybe been at a restaurant where you've seen somebody else doing that. The people are at the table together, but everybody at the table is on their phone, right? They're not eating together. They happen to be sitting at the same table while they're eating individually. And Paul wants them to not only eat together, he wants them to pay attention to each other. He wants them to know each other. This is what he means by discerning the body. Here's how one writer explains it, which I think is really helpful, is really helpful to me, and hopefully it'll be helpful to you. He says, to discern the body means to discern the church as a community. To discern the body is to partake of the supper in a way that bears witness to not only the unity of the body of Christ, the church, but also to the koinonia, the fellowship of that body, which transcends all social and economic barriers. Thus, Paul's statement is directly linked to the specific problem in the Corinthian assembly. The problem is not that the Corinthians did not think about the cross. This is really powerful. The problem is not that the Corinthians did not think about the cross, but rather the problem was that they did not embody the cross in a communal way at the table. The church eats worthily when it eats as a united community embodying the values for which Christ died. There is a difference, he's saying, between sitting silently and thinking about the cross and all that Jesus did for you and for me, which can be good. But there's a difference between that and embodying that and living it out among the community. And I have to say, church, that if the Corinthians used the supper to maintain social distinctions in culture, allowing the classes of the wealthy and the poor to bleed over into the church and to influence the way they functioned as the church. And this might be the hard word that you you, you and I need to hear this morning. I've already been hearing it all the last several weeks as I've been preparing for this, so now we get to share the the burden. If, If the Corinthians use the supper to maintain social distinctions in culture, and allow these classes in the world to bleed over into the church and influence the way they function, then in our day, what we have done is allowed the supper to be transformed into a private event. And I want to say with as much love as I can, both are wrong. The way they did it excluded some people, right? Wealthy and poor, dividing the church into sections. And the other way, the way we do it, potentially, not to say there isn't benefit to the way we do it, but potentially it is excluding everybody but you, everybody but me. Because I'm not asked to discern the body of Christ as I take the bread and the wine. Now, again, that doesn't mean there can't be significance and meaning and purpose and value and, you know, uh, 
Maybe, maybe you haven't received a word from the Lord or received some comfort or blessing from participating in, this, in the Lord's Supper the way that we have done it historically and that churches have done it. But it was intended as a meal. And then as churches grew and became structured and somebody, you know, they, they moved into auditoriums instead of houses and, and somebody got up to preach, right? Th- then everything started to change. And so what I want us to do is to reimagine, and to revisit what would, it, what would it look like to really discern the body of Christ in a new way. Again, certainly there are benefits to sitting quietly and reflecting on your relationship with Jesus. And yes, he does say that you should examine yourself, but the fact is that this meal was never imagined as a private event. I've been really convicted about this in studying this. And most of us, myself included, have been doing it this way for our entire lives so long that I, I'll start, have a hard time imagining it being done any other way. Right? It's like if you just you cook a recipe the same way for so long, you're like, I don't even know how I would do it differently if I was going to try to do it differently. But what if? That's the question I want us to ask this morning. What if? We're not going to make any large sweeping changes over the next couple of weeks about the way we do the Lord's Supper. We might need to, and we might need to consider that, but what if we imagined it together? What if we had the courage to reimagine it in a way that where we could truly discern the body of Christ, the church, as we took the body of Christ, Jesus? See, that's, that, he's, he's saying discern the body of Christ, be aware of the body of Christ as you take the body of Christ. It's not either or, it's both and. And there are many ways that this might play out in actual church. Some ideas that might come to your mind as the Holy Spirit impresses something upon your heart this morning. And if that that happens, I want to hear your ideas because, like I said, I've been wrestling with this for some time. We We might need to rethink everything about how we structure our service on a Sunday. Or we might need to rethink what the Lord's Supper time looks like each week. Maybe it's less formalized, maybe less quiet. Maybe there's interaction with one another somehow. There's a lot of ways to think about it, and I don't have all the answers about that. But what we know is that when the church eats worthily, it is eating as a united community, embodying the values for which Christ died. And again, and again that, that might happen. I think it does happen to some extent as we take it individually and we recognize, you know, maybe just privately recognizing each other. But maybe, maybe it's that as we take it individually and we recognize, maybe it's not so much about me quietly thinking about what Jesus has done for me, but as as I embody, what it means to not only think about the cross, but embody the cross, is that as I take it, I'm aware of someone in the church that is struggling. And it moves me in my spirit to get up out of my seat and to walk over to them and sit down and put my arm around them and pray with them and encourage them and love them well. That, that may be all that it means. Maybe it's still a private event for a time, but that we see as we're embodying it. This isn't a thing we check off the list, right? I've taken the bread, I've taken the wine, now I can leave. This is something that we embody and that we live out. And that's part of what Jesus imagined, that you're, you're discerning the body of Christ. And that means we know each other, and we, we, we know each other, and we know what's going on in each other's lives so that we can minister to one another in that way. So, Today, we are not going to jump off into the deep end of the pool in regard to what we might do and how we might do this differently, but we are going to take a step and do something a little different. I'm going to, do, I'm going to jump off in the deep end of the pool in chapter 13, the love chapter, so you can come back for that, that sermon too. Uh, 
because I think everything, for what it's worth, this is a free, free comment, everything is really building towards 1 Corinthians 13. So we'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. But what I want to do is invite the men that are serving the, the bread and the wine to, to go back to the back. You can make your way back there. And uh, what we're going to do is going to require that you're not sitting by yourself. So if, if you're on a row and there's not someone sitting immediately to your right or left, I want you to slide to where someone is next to you. Uh, slide where there's multiple people in a row. And so let's just stand up and make that easier if you would just stand up and do that really quickly. You don't have to move across the room, but I want you with some other people. And you can sit down with those other people uh, when, when you get there. <clears throat> okay, so you can have a seat. Once you've done that, you can have a seat where you are. Okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give some instruction about kind of what's going to happen here. Uh, again, this is, this is baby steps, right? And, I, and again, I want to I say to you, I really want to, to uh, emphasize that um, I want to hear your feedback about thoughts that come to your mind, things that maybe God impresses upon you uh, about ways that this could look because uh, I believe the Spirit of God is at work among us and, and that there may be uh, a word that you receive that, that, that we need to hear. And so please let's have these ongoing conversations about this. Um, so what we're going to do, when the, when the men come down and pass the trays, we've done this before, uh, if you were here at some point a couple of years ago. Uh, they're going to pass the trays, start at the front, just like they, like they always do. And as a small gesture uh, of acknowledging one another, I want you to look at the person next to you that you pass the tray to, and I want you to greet them, Okay. Now, that might be a smile, it might be a hug, it might be a good morning. Maybe you're sitting by somebody you've not even said good morning to yet, right? I mean, honestly, just think about it. Could it be that that might be part of what Paul's talking about? That we would take the Lord's Supper with the body of Christ and not have even greeted the person next to us? Surely not, right? Like, but if, if that ever happens, then man, this would be the first time you, should, you can talk during communion. Every week, not just today. Regardless of what you've been told, you can talk during this meal. I've never eaten a meal where we were completely silent. And you haven't either, unless you're by yourself or with someone you really don't want to be with, right? So the first thing you're going to do is greet the people next to you. Good morning. Hug them. Smile at them. I'm glad you're here. It's good to see you. Okay? And then when the bread comes, I want you to say, this is the body of Christ broken for you. And so it's not the first time you're saying it. When you say it, I want to practice together, uh, practice together before we do it. So it's gonna, you're going to say, this is the body of Christ broken for you. So let's say that together. Ready? One, two, three. This is the body of Christ broken for you. Now, in order to get this right, uh, if there's someone near you, again, that's sitting by themselves, you've got to make sure and encourage them to go sit by them. If we are to properly pay attention to one another, we have to be with one another. Uh, and so after, after we do this, I'm going to say a prayer for the bread, and then I'll get up and I'll, I'll ins- give us some instruction about the cup. So let's pray. Let's pray together. And I'm coming to sit by you, Chris. Father, we are grateful for this body and for the privilege of gathering this morning to discern and pay attention to and to look into each other's eyes and to, to feel like we've been seen this morning. 
Forgive us, God, when we have entered this room and we have not taken an opportunity to see each other. Pray, I pray, God, this morning that you'll convict us of the importance of discerning the body of Christ as we take the body of Christ. And this morning, I pray, God, that, that we will we'll receive this bread as a reminder of Christ's death that we proclaim until he comes back. And the church said, amen. Let's take this bread together. I mean, y'all are pros. You're pros at this. See? It wasn't even that hard. <clears throat> All right, so the cup comes next, and the, the thing we're going to say uh, is that this is the blood of Christ shed for you. This is the blood of Christ shed for you. And again, the, these words don't necessarily, there's nothing significant to the words. What, really what they're doing is, is kind of serving as an icebreaker, right? Because sometimes it feels like, again, most of us have done it one way for so long, we can't imagine it being done a different way. And so it's like, well, what do I say, right? I don't know how to start the, you know. And so this at least gives up what I noticed just now was as we started those, with that greeting and that, those words being shared, that you didn't need instruction about what to do next. There's like murmuring and mumbling and conversation going all over the room, which is exactly the way it should be, right? And so after the cup comes by, there's not going to be, we're going to have a song, a common love, is that the song, Chris? A Common Love, and then uh, Mike Holder's going to lead us in the Shepherd's Prayer. Uh, so you're, you're encouraged to keep your conversation going, uh, pray with each other, encourage each other, 
be aware of each other, uh, spend some time uh, seeing the people around you. So let's pray uh, for the cup. Again, this is the body of Christ shed for you is the phrase that you'll share. God, we come again this morning grateful for Christ's blood uh, that we know for us is a, uh, a representation of the power that you displayed on the cross in extending forgiveness of sins to the world. And we have received that forgiveness and are grateful for it. We are aware of it. And we pray that we will not only think about the cross, but that we will embody the cross of Christ as we live as a community together. I'm thankful for this church. We are thankful for the blood of Christ that was shed for us. And we pray in the name of Jesus. And the church said, amen. Let's take this together.